As we begin our study of God's Word this morning, I invite you to please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Mark, chapter 3. Love the Gospel of Mark. Kind of just gets right to it. You read through the Gospel of Mark and it's almost... And immediately, 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 it just really goes right into things. Likely the first Gospel that was written... Gospel of Mark, chapter 3. Look down, if you would, please, to verse 20. And he came home, and the multitude gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. Here's Jesus our Lord. We're only in chapter 3. Here's Jesus our Lord, and it's getting crowded. People are coming around. People are following Him. He's getting known all around the region. Popular, as we would say. And people are seeking Him out and crowding all the time, crowding around Him. So much so, the text tells us, that they cannot even eat a meal. And when His own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of Him, for they were saying, He has lost His senses. You hear that? When His own people heard about the popularity of Jesus and all of these people following Him and all of the things that accompanied this and all of the things that were happening, they said, we've got to go take Him. We've got to go take Him home. He's lost His senses. Who were these people? Spoken of here in the Gospel of Mark in, in verse 21. It refers to them as His own people. Who are His own people that wanted to take Him away? We find the answer in verse 31. And His mother and His brothers arrived. And standing outside, they sent word to Him and called Him. It's His mother and brothers. I hate to accuse the the, uh, Roman Catholics of being wrong, but Jesus had half-brothers. And even Mary was not always right. They wanted to come and take Him away. You know, they thought He had lost His senses. You read in John chapter 7, His own brothers did not believe in Him. They thought He had lost His senses and here's what they were going to do. They were going to take Him and they were going to take Him home quietly and just kind of take care of Jesus because He's kind of lost His mind. I don't want to go any further right now, but let me ask you this. What would have happened if they succeeded? What would have happened if Mary and Jesus' half-brothers took Him home, took Him back to their place and kept Him there away from the rest of the world. You know what would have happened. You would never have heard of Jesus. You would never be reading this. We would not know of who He was. And He would not have fulfilled what the Father sent Him to do. If they had taken Him out of His ministry, He would have disappeared, He would have been gone, and we would never have heard of Him. Let alone would we have ever had our sins paid for 
by his sacrificial death on the cross. They would have kept him from the cross. Now, needless to say, that's not what happened. They came to take him, but, verse 32, the multitude was standing around him. They said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. And answering them, he said, Who are my mothers and my brothers? And looking about on those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mothers and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. We are his people because of what he did go on to do. Now, I want you to turn to that passage we read a little bit about in Luke. Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. Here in Luke chapter 4, we read from verse 16 and following about how Jesus was at the local synagogue in Nazareth and He read from the prophet Isaiah and He said to the people after reading it and curiously enough, they were okay with what He says as He says, today this Scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And of course, the passage of Scripture that he read, we see in verse 18, was that the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because He has anointed me to preach the Gospel to the poor and has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind and to set those who are downtrodden to proclaim the favorable year of the Lord. That's what the Messiah was going to do. And Jesus says, this day... This has been fulfilled in your hearing. And still, verse 22, they were all speaking well of Him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from His lips. And they were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Joseph the carpenter. Right? But being the the perfect preacher that He is, He did not hold back. He gave the full counsel and admonition to these people in this synagogue. That's what preachers are supposed to do. Sometimes I hold back. And sometimes I think I shouldn't. Sometimes I don't hold back and sometimes I think I should have. But that's what pastors are called on to do. To preach the Word of God, to tell you what it says, if it hurts or not. And if it hurts, it hurts. Deal with it. And so he goes on here and he says, No doubt you will quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. Whatever we heard was done in Capernaum, do here in your hometown as well. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his own hometown. But I say to you in truth. There were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land and yet Elijah was sent to none of them but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon to a woman who was a widow. Whoa! He didn't go to the Israelites. He went to a Gentile in the land of Sidon And that was a dig. You Israelites, you Jews, you think it's all right? You think you're all set? Well, let let me remind you that Elijah didn't go to you guys with the miracle. He went to this woman 
in Zarephath in the land of Sidon. And there were many lepers in Israel at the time of Elisha the prophet, and none of them were cleansed, but only Nahum the Syrian. Ouch! He was a Gentile. He was an enemy to Israel. And Jesus says, you've got to get right with God. Just because you're of the lineage of Judaism, just because you're an Israelite in name, doesn't mean you're right with God. This is just like saying, you must be born again. He's telling them that just because they are of the nation of Israel, doesn't mean they're right with God. And now, how do you suppose they felt? They were slightly agitated. For we read in verse 28, And all the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. Nobody likes to be told your religion ain't right. They were filled with rage. You know, preachers have to do that. Preachers have to preach even to their own congregations. We are blessed and fortunate in this place that so many of you know Jesus. And I know you, and I know you know Jesus. But many, many years I've preached in congregations where I've had to preach evangelistically to my own congregation. Because I knew them. Just like I know you. I knew them. And I knew many of them were lost. They came to church, but they were lost. They came every Sunday, but they went home lost. There was no evidence of regeneration in their lives. No evidence of the Spirit within them. No evidence of holiness or godliness. Now, don't get me wrong, I know we're all sinners We'll talk about that in a moment. But you will know them by their fruit. And preachers need to preach to their congregations evangelistically sometimes because there are so many lost people going to churches today. And so that's what Jesus was doing right there in Israel. You guys, you're the Jews. You're the chosen ones. But you need to be saved. And they were filled with rage. They were filled with rage. And look what they did. They rose up and cast him out of the city and led him to the brow of the hill upon which that city had been built. It's actually a, a cliff in order to throw him down the cliff. They brought him to the brow, the edge, and they were going to throw him down. So you see how much rage they were filled with because of what Jesus was saying. I am not exaggerating when I'm telling you that He was getting right in their face and telling them, just because you're Jews doesn't mean you're going to be with the God you pretend to believe in. You're lost. You need to be saved. And they're filled with rage. And, and you see it in the text. They rose up which indicates that they were filled with wrath and indignation against Him. They cast Him out is an expression of force. They first cast Him out of the synagogue and then they cast Him out of the town and they dragged Him. They led Him, the text says, but it's likely that they dragged Him, forced Him, brought Him to the edge of this cliff right on the precipice. I happened to look this up on the Internet. It's a steep cliff. It's huge. 
it drops off like that and there's rocks and crags down below and Jesus would most likely have been killed. In fact, that's the implication that they were going to throw him off and kill him. And we stop here again. What if they had succeeded? I mean, this is a dangerous situation. This is a serious situation. They've dragged him to the edge of the cliff. He's there at the edge of the cliff. There's a whole lot more of them than there is of him. All the synagogue, they're all enraged. They're, they're furious. They take him to the edge of the cliff. What if they had thrown him over? Once again, I say to you, if they had thrown him over, there would have been no sacrificial death of Jesus on the cross, no shedding of His blood on the cross, because He would have been killed on the rocks below. would have been dead, physically speaking, if He were a man. Of course, we all realize that this could not have happened. And even in the text, it tells us that they dragged Him to the brow to throw Him off, but passing through their midst, He went His way. How could that be? I mean, it's only one of Him. All of them. He just passed through their midst. Like all of a sudden they didn't recognize Him. Or like all of a sudden they had no power over Him. But they weren't successful. This is a dangerous situation. A life and death situation. And Jesus could have been, were He just a man, killed. Look at uh, John's Gospel chapter 8. John's Gospel chapter 8. Look down to verse 59. We're just going to kind of focus in on that. Very end of the chapter. Jesus is telling them that He is the Messiah. This is one of the great I am declarations of our Lord in the Gospel of John. And He says to them that your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day and he was he saw it and was glad. That's verse 56. And the Jews go, wait a minute, wait a minute. You're not even 50 years old and you've seen Abraham? And Jesus says to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was born, I am. In fact, in my opinion, the, the most clearest I am declaration in the Bible from our Lord. He doesn't say, I am the bread of life or I am the light. He just says, before Abraham was, I am. And they knew exactly what he meant. That's why verse 59 says, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. They were going to stone him to death. Again, a serious and dangerous situation. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. They were going to kill him. They, they picked up stones to stone him. You know, once again, if they had stoned him and killed him, no sacrificial death on the cross. And of course, obviously, he would have been proved not to be who he claimed to be. More on that in a moment again. Let's look at another one. John chapter 10. Just over a page or two. John chapter 10. And we look down once again towards the end of this chapter, down to verse 30. Let's, uh, let's start uh, in verse 27. My sheep hear my voice and I know them. And they follow me and I give eternal life to them. And they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. 
My Father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. Once again, the Jews took up stones again to stone Him. They were going to stone Him. They were going to kill Him. Could they have done it? Physically speaking, they certainly could have. But could they have done it? No way. That's where we find ourselves as we turn again to our text in Acts chapter 4. If He had been put to death by these people, if He had been taken away by His mother and His brothers, there would have been no sacrificial death on the cross and it would have shown that He was not the Messiah, that He was not God. So last Lord's Day, we began looking at this text in Acts chapter 4 where we read right now, just down to verse 27, Truly in this city there were gathered together against thy holy servant Jesus, whom thou didst anoint both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever thy hand and thy purpose predestined to occur. We're looking at the fact that they are saying that God is a sovereign God. And all things in conjunction with His cross, with the cross of Christ, happened according to His power, His purpose, and His predestination. And that's what the apostles are actually praying and honoring God with their prayer and saying, God, all that has happened has happened by Your hand, by Your plan and Your purpose. If these other people had been allowed to take Jesus away from His ministry, if they had been allowed to or somehow able to stop Him from doing what He had come to do, if the will of man had prevailed, if they had succeeded, then His eternal plan of redemption would have been frustrated. His eternal plan of redemption would have failed. And that could not happen. And why could it not happen? Because He is God. Because He is sovereign. Because He is in control. And none of the plans of man can ever prevail against the sovereign will of God. It can't happen. Yes, Jesus is God and they could never have killed God, but they could never have done it anyway because that was not the sovereign design and plan of God from before the foundation of the world. It is His power, His hand. It is His purpose, His will. And it is by His predestination that these things came to pass as He had planned. That's what they were saying in their prayer to God in verse 28. Do you realize 
that what they're doing in that prayer is just honoring God, exalting God, acknowledging God to be God. The sovereignty of God, though downplayed and trampled on in our day by many, is simply telling us that the God that we worship is the true God. We mentioned this last week. I say it again. Keep it in your heads. To think of God as in anything less or to deny Him of His sovereignty is to think of Him as less than being God. Because if God is not in control, how could He be God? If man is control, how could God be God? God is in control, not man, not men. His purposes shall prevail. His purposes will come to pass as He has designed. The God of the Bible is a sovereign God. He is King of kings and Lord of lords. And He is over all and rules over all as He sees fit. Years ago, there was this uh, song or something. It came from a movie, I think. Ruler of the Universe. I can't even remember who it was. It was some one of these action heroes who was the ruler of the universe. God is truly the ruler of the universe. And only God. There is no Superman. There is God. And He is the ruler of the universe. And so again, because of His sovereign plan, because of His sovereignty, His sovereign plan, His sovereign purposes will come to pass by His powerful hands. And none of the attempts of these people could ever have changed that. That whole synagogue carrying Him right to the precipice of that cliff. They go to throw him off and all of a sudden he's gone. They could never have done it because his sovereign purpose will prevail. Now, I said to you a moment ago that these men here were honoring God in their prayer. They were thanking God for his sovereignty, for the fact that he is in control. You know, I I just can't understand why people in churches today will not allow God to be sovereign. Don't want God to be in control. We think of the macho situation, you know, I'm in control of my own destiny. That's what men like to say. We're Americans. We're in control of our own destiny. No, you're not. You think that's the case? Look at what's happening in our country now. What are you doing about that? You know, in control of your own destiny. God is in control. Here these men were praying and honoring and thanking God that He is a sovereign God. And what I want to mention before we go on is how wonderful this doctrine is for His people. How wonderful it is for you and me to know and to believe and to trust that God is sovereign. That God is in control. You can rest in His kind 
providence to protect you, to care for you, to guide you. You're not giving your life up to chance. We mentioned this last week. No such thing as luck, karma. We trust God. We believe in God. I've already had some people who can't say good luck. Well, that's right. You really shouldn't say good luck. Luck is a pagan God. We thank God and believe in God for all that He does for us. And this is what these men are praying. Thank you, God. There's nothing happening here that happened without you knowing it. And then we can apply this to our lives in so many ways. We can trust in His eternal wisdom as it pertains to me. As it pertains to you. God knows what you need today. God knows what you need tomorrow. And you can trust that He will care for you. And listen, no harm will ever come to you outside of the purview of His eternal purpose. I mentioned last week, man thinks that he's going to do things. The Proverbs teaches us that man thinks in his mind what he will do, but God directs his steps. I think, well, I want to go home today, but God could direct a tractor trailer right into my car. We don't know what His eternal purpose is, but His eternal purpose will come to pass. But the opposite is also true. God will protect you. And no harm will ever come to you outside of the purview of His kind providence and will. In fact, I want to ask you to turn to that very well-known passage in Romans chapter 8 just for a few moments. Because I want this to be good for us. I want us to understand the sovereignty of God as a good thing and not at all a bad thing. Because it is. Many people who would deny the sovereignty of God in their lives and say all the choices are up to me and everything is all my doing and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that they'd still turn to this passage of Scripture and go, wow, isn't this great? As they read here in this passage, in verse 28, And we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and are called according to His purpose. All things work together for good. How does that happen? Now, first of all, we understand we're talking about God's people. He makes that very clear. All things are going to work together for the good with God's people in every way, in every circumstance. And there's only one way that that can be, and that's because He is in control. He is the sovereign God who cares for you and orders all things for your good. Well, you could say, well, wait a minute. It wasn't good that my friend died. It wasn't good that so-and-so got cancer. It wasn't good that I went through this trial. I didn't think this trial was very much fun when I was going through it. All of that is true. But when you believe in a sovereign God, you can believe very confidently that it's all for your good. That the trial that you go through is the trial that God sent to teach you to train you, to help you grow. I don't particularly like the phrase, but it puts it well that if we never had a problem, 
we'd never know that He could solve them. That's a line from a hymn or a song. But it's true in a very real way that God teaches us His goodness, His mercy, His kindness as He shows Himself to be faithful in times of trial. You read in the epistle of James to the people that he's writing to, count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter trials. And, and he's speaking of the trials that they're engaged in of losing their homes and losing their jobs and in many cases losing their families. But he says to them, it's God's training. Hebrews tells us that whom He loves, He disciplines and trains. Just like any father would any child. All of you who have had children or have children know that you train them, you teach them. Sometimes you have to spank them. That kid doesn't think it feels good right now. But they grow up to be good children because you apply to them the principles of the Bible. And that's what God does to us. The trials that He brings our way are for our good. That's the only way you can look at this text. He causes all things to work together for our good. And they may not seem like that's good or they're good, but He does. He sees them for our good. Your trial is His lesson. And He is the one who is working all things together for our good. And how is that? By His sovereign, eternal plan for even you. He is the God who is God. He is the God who is in control. He has, if we can say it reverently, the last word. He is the God who is God. Now, this is what is being said in this text. But let's look back now to Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4. And I want to actually back up and begin to deal with this sovereignty of God as it pertains to the cross of Christ. Because in verse 27, they are speaking of those things that are involved with the death, burial, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we understand now what is being said. And I want to turn our attention now and focus on the cross and consider what happened what actually happened that they're thanking God for, what actually happened that they're praying about, what actually happened that they're honoring God for His sovereignty because of. And that is the cross of Christ. And that's why the whole title of these messages, in conjunction with our services regarding the resurrection of Christ, could be and are indeed titled The Sovereignty of God, in the cross of Christ. We've talked about the sovereignty of God. We understand somewhat of it from this text. But now let's begin to look at it as it unfolded in the cross of Christ. As it unfolded in the events that took place surrounding the death of our Lord. How do we see the sovereignty of God in the events that took place for Jesus and His death burial, and His resurrection. That's what we're going to begin to consider. 
And for this, I want to ask you to first turn with me to Galatians chapter 4. Galatians chapter 4. As we look first at God's sovereignty over the sending of His Son, Jesus. God's sovereignty over the sending of His Son, Jesus. Now, I know that this is not dealing with the cross, but the cross could never have happened without the Incarnation. And so I want us to see the sovereignty of God in sending His Son. Here we have in Galatians chapter 4, look down to verse 5, where the writer, the Apostle Paul says, "...in order that He, that is Jesus, might redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons." So he's talking about that whole event that took place with Jesus dying on the cross. That is when redemption occurred. He tells us that Jesus came to redeem in order that we would be reconciled to God, that we would be made sons and daughters again, that we would be the adopted sons of God, the adopted daughters of God. But first, we have to understand what this whole redemption is. Redemption is what occurs because of our condition, the bondage that we had to our sin. Shown here where he says that he would redeem those who were under the law. And not merely does it mean subject to the law, but judged by the law. Condemned by the law. We are all sinners. We are all guilty before God. Please understand that aside from our Lord Jesus Himself, there has been no one ever born by a woman who is not a sinner. There is no one aside from our Lord Jesus, ever born to a woman who is not estranged from and alienated from God. We are at enmity with God, the Bible says. We are in our sins and our trespasses. And in the eyes of God, we are dead, spiritually speaking. And that's the way we are all born. Sinners! In bondage to our sin. Captive to our sin. All of us. Romans 3 tells us that there is none righteous. Not even one. There is none who seeks for God left to Himself. None. We are all sinners. We are all transgressors. We have all sinned and come short of the glory of God. Sometimes I can't help but think of some who hear the preaching of God's Word on a regular basis. Sometimes maybe some of the younger ones and those who may listen. They may think to themselves, well, this is the part of the sermon where the preacher tells us we're sinners. Okay, this is weekly time. He tells us that we're sinners. and Okay, we can sit through this for another couple of minutes. 
I want you to just think deep in your heart and your soul. You know there's a God. You know there's a heaven. And you know there's a hell. And I want you to just say to yourself these few words, seven words. I don't want to go to hell. And if you could say that, oh God, I don't want to go to hell. Then you need a Redeemer. You need a Redeemer. Because the only way that you will not go to hell is if your sins are paid for. That's pretty much what the word means. Redemption, the word redemption, speaks of the payment of a price. The payment of the price. We sometimes refer to it as ransom. Jesus paid the ransom. And that's what the Greek word is talking about. Paying the price to set you free. And if you can, for just a moment, forget that you know me, forget that you've heard this a thousand times, that you're a sinner. You are a sinner! And if you don't want to go to hell, you need a Redeemer. And there is only one that God has ever sent to be a Redeemer. And it is His Son, Jesus. This is what Paul is talking about. He is the one who might redeem you from under the judgment and the curse and the condemnation of the law to make you sons of the living God. Here's my question. When did He do it? Verse 4, But it was in the fullness of the time, it was when the fullness of the time came, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, in order that He might redeem those who were under the law. Did you hear that phrase? The fullness of time. This redemption came. Christ came to go to the cross in the fullness of of time. What is that? That is God's exact sovereign eternal plan of redemption. His time. His exact specific time. The time according to the eternal plan of God. That exact time set by Him is when Jesus came. The time set from before the foundation of the world. Jesus came. Jesus was born of a woman. He did not come one moment too soon. He did not come one minute too late. He came at the exact time according to the sovereign, eternal plan of God. Now think with me too. Jesus came to Mary. This woman who was a a holy woman, a godly woman, espoused 
to a, a man, and yet they were not completely married. Their service of marriage is a little different than ours. There's that betrothal period when they're actually given to one another, but the marriage isn't consummated until the marriage ceremony. But that betrothal period is more than our engagement. It's pure. It's, it's like it's already done. We're just waiting to the, for the finalization. And they were given to one another and they hadn't come together. There had been no interaction between Mary and Joseph. She was a virgin. If Jesus came a few weeks later, a few months later, too late. A few months earlier, they may not have been betrothed. Right time. Exact right time. Not only that, she's pregnant at the exact right time that the census is called for. That was no accident. That's the providential hand of God. That they therefore have to travel from this Nazareth area down to Bethlehem because that's fulfillment of what God said would happen. Exact right time. Fulfillment in the way that God said it would happen. They were under Roman rule. Years earlier might not have been. Years later might not have been. Not today. Couldn't happen anymore. I don't know what the Jews are waiting for. Messiah's come. He came at the exact right time according to the eternal plan of God's redemption. And they go down to Bethlehem in fulfillment of the Scriptures exactly as God had predestinated and proclaimed through the prophets in the Old Testament. And here they are exactly at the right time. And they go down to Bethlehem. John the Baptist comes along, prepares the way, proclaiming out in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Right there. Exact right time. Again, that was a supernatural birth to Elizabeth too, who was way beyond years to give birth. Exact right time. God ordering all things to happen. Ordering all these things. At this time in history, the Jews were rebellious against the Romans and rebellious against God. Their religion had become nothing more than traditions and formalism and rules and regulations. And they rebelled against this one Jesus that we saw a few moments ago in their synagogue saying, you've got to get saved. You must be born again. Just because you're a Jew doesn't mean you're right. This is what Jesus did. He came and He taught the truth of who He was, who God is, and what God's Word says. And at the right time, because the Jews needed it. The leaders were rebellious and apostate, but the people needed to hear the truth of a prophet. And He came at the exact right time because now there was this thing called crucifixion. It wasn't around when David wrote Psalm 22. You'd think it was from his description. But at this right time in history, there was crucifixion. There isn't any more. Nobody's doing that now. Psalm 22 could never be fulfilled now. Again, what are people waiting for? The Messiah has come. Nobody's crucifying anybody here. I mean, it is the exact right time where God had ordered all things according to His sovereign plan and purpose. God ordered everything exactly right and in the fullness of time sent forth His only Son 
born of a woman, born under the law to redeem us from the law. To redeem us from the curse of the law and the judgment of the law by His grace and mercy to bring us back, to reconcile us. We're alienated from God and He reconciles us. Sinners! Unworthy sinners! Reconciled to God. All of us are born sinners. That's saying that we say so often because it is so true. We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. And yet God sent His Son in the fullness of time to pay the price for my sin. To bring me back to God to reconcile me to God, to make me a son or a daughter, to set me free from the captivity of sin, pay the ransom for my sin debt. And that happened at the exact time God had decreed, in the fullness of time. The exact right time. God's time. Our redemption began from before the foundation of the world with the eternal plan of God. The eternal sovereign plan of God. And He brought it to pass by His hand, by His purpose, in His providence, in His predestination, His powerful, sovereign hand, His wise Eternal purpose and His predestination to bring it to pass. And it did happen just as He said it would. Just as He declared it would. And for our good. What a great God. What a great and mighty and wonderful God to bring all this to pass before we were even born. To bring all this to pass before we were ever even interested in the Gospel. All for our salvation. What a great God we worship. A great, powerful, and loving God. Look back to Acts chapter 4 as we bring this to a close here. This is what these men here in Acts chapter 4 are praying about. Speaking about our redemption. When they talk about those who are gathered together against Thy holy servant Jesus. All these things were done by His hand, His purpose, and His predestination. This is what is being spoken of here. The perfect and eternal plan of God in sending His Son at the perfect time. The perfect time. God's time. Do you recognize God this way? In control. In control of all things. In control of your life. In control of redemption. He is the Lord. If you don't recognize God as control, don't sing these hymns that proclaim Him to be King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Because you don't believe it. But if you know God to be this God, then we joyfully sing it. As 
Handel wrote it. King of kings and Lord of lords. Hallelujah! That's what our God is. That's who our God is. And we, like these men here in this text, should honor Him as such, even in our prayers. Because that's what they're doing. They're praying. They're honoring God as sovereign in their prayers. Acknowledging God as sovereign in bringing His redemptive purposes to pass through Jesus. We believe that. This church believes that God is God. That God is sovereign. In the next coming weeks, we're going to look at several other areas where this is seen specifically in the things that occurred in the cross of Christ. But for now, let's acknowledge Him as God, as sovereign God, as we pray. Let's pray.